Hello and welcome to Voices in Innovation from GigaOM. I am Johnny Baldisberger, and today I am not your host. Instead, we have a special episode where analyst John Collins interviews Harbinder Kang on the subject of DevOps. I hope you enjoy, and let's get right to it. I'm delighted to welcome Harbinder Kang, who is a big, big snazzy title here, Global Head of Developer Operations, which sounds pretty like it's uh, right in the ballpark for this particular podcast at Finastra. So so before we start, Harbinder, do you want to give us a bit of an introduction to, to yourself and, and what journey you followed in order to get to be the global head of developer operations at Finastra, and maybe a bit about Finastra as well, because it's, it's maybe not a household name. So uh, over to you, balls in your court. Sure. Thank you, John. So yeah, Harbinder Kang, uh, I'm based out of London, currently, as you said, uh, head up a DevOps role that focuses on a transformation of the software and services that Finastra sells. Finastra is a big fintech enterprise, uh, 10,000 employees. Half of them work on the software and services we sell, um, over 9,000 customers. And um, yeah, my, my primary role in, in, in the organization is looking at the software delivery performance and operational performance of those products and identifying with the business what we want to do to improve. Uh, that can really vary depending on the project or product. We have um, yeah, long-lived software in a business model um, that's you know built around license, uh, service, uh, you know heavy customization of that software for very demanding um, customers, long mm-hmm. implementation times, all the way to offering today multi-tenant cloud-based uh, platforms in the cloud, um, you know multiple geographies. Uh, so uh, it re- what what I do in those in this space really varies between. Um, the kind of products and projects we're working on. Uh, what brought me to this point? Um, just stepping back. So I started out working on a project, a startup company, 50 people, again, in the fintech space, selling enterprise software. Uh, being in a team that small, you find yourself um, being thrown around, uh, trying lots of different things, customer support, QA, a bit of development, a bit of going on site and getting the software working at the client site. Uh, and I felt, felt, found myself gravitating towards um, the whole build engineering and release space before people called it DevOps. Uh-huh. The project at the time had like a, a, a ad hoc build Perl script. Um, we never really had it working at any given time and integration was a big problem. <laughs> so I Nothing just, wrong with Perl. Yeah, well, yeah. Apart um, from. <laughs> and then uh, um, one weekend I just decided to uh, put CI into place. So I implemented cruise control over a weekend uh, way back when and brought continuous integration to the project. And I just was very attracted to the engineering around the delivery process and just building on that. Um, did a lot of uh, projects after that kind of snowboard, taking the, the project to Maven, introducing Git, introduce, you know, big shift left uh, mm-hmm. umbrella. Uh, and then along the way, uh, I found myself working in other areas of the delivery process. So test automation um, and the test strategies, understanding what it means to uh, work uh, both within a waterfall methodology and an agile methodology during that time. 
leading to me leading to where I am now. So um, being able to look at DevOps holistically for uh, projects and understanding what it takes and what the business wants when it comes to transforming uh, and a shift right almost uh, more recently in terms of uh, operational performance in production and what that means in the DevOps space and uh, the engineering practices it takes to to make highly available software. Mm -hmm. So um, you're, I'm I'm intrigued by you kind of just uh, thinking, oh, uh, let's just do this and, and putting uh, a CI in place uh, over a weekend. Um, uh, when you did that, I'm thinking about what does your kind of internal stakeholder network look like? That sounded a bit jargonesque, didn't it? But it's essentially who you engage with and, and uh, kind of what was the reaction on Monday when you said, hey, look what I've done and, and who did you say it to and how did it kind of pan out in terms of... Yeah, it's um, an interesting story, actually. So um, I was just working with my development pairs and we were just um, expressing our pains around needing to ship hotfixes, essentially, and just how difficult it was to do that in the heat of the moment when, you know, you've got a customer escalating, uh, decided we needed to do something better. Uh, I got, became obsessed with making it work over that weekend. Uh, um, was hacking away with cruise control as well because it wasn't really a finished product. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on Monday, essentially, I just the way I notified everybody is just set up an email notification for the group using an alias, and they started getting emails uh, about a build breaking. And the dev manager at the time was like, "Whoa!" And then held a team meeting and kind of asked me to walk through it, which was interesting. I didn't expect that reaction at the time, and then yeah, I just I kind of found myself naturally attracted to that space. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the, so you weren't kind of, uh, it wasn't a, a corporate edict, like this is something we need to do. It was just kind of um, almost a bit of a, a kind of a hobby, not a hobby project, that sounds right, but a, 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 non, a non-critical, non-strategic thing that you just thought, we've got to sort this stuff out. Yeah. And we were a small team at the time. So this was a startup that was acquired and we remained in startup mode for a couple of years, 50 people. And um, I think a lot of this was just ground up, bottom up initiative. And this is interesting. So this also, it, it kind of sets your position. So you had that, um, almost the authority to do it. So it would, for a start, because it was a smaller company, and it, it sounds like you've kind of retained that, uh, that hat, for want of a better term. Uh, right the way from from then to now and just kind of you've grown it left you've grown it right but it's all been about kind of standing at one side of the development process and its route into operations and saying how can we make this better is is that a fair yeah and and learning to work with stakeholders just beyond the development group the r&d group and the operations group as well because where i am now um for example implementing continuous delivery practices you need to work with uh, the larger enterprise. Uh, you need to work with heavyweight process and controls. Uh, you want to be able to push to production on a daily basis. Um, you can't ignore um, those elements of the organization. So it, I would say today is, is far more holistic um, with the teams I, I work with in terms of achieving those goals. Uh, but it's, it's essentially the same mindset, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, that, it does make a lot of sense, and it's where people like me go into the waffle mode, where we use terms like you need to work with a broader group of stakeholders, like you know, uh, business business based roles, and, and that's and it means nothing, but it just means anyone that isn't traditional 
uh, and, and you've, you've captured you know, more, more clearly who, who those people are. So all of this is kind of building up to a question, which is, given the fact that you've been doing this for, I don't know, a, a good eight, nine years now, um, he said, glancing at your LinkedIn page, I'm making that up, but uh, <laughs> that's about right. Uh, uh, over this time, you must have kind of learned there's a way to kind of bring in practices. I mean, I, I'm going to I'm going to backtrack a second because you you started talking about CI. Uh, the podcast is about DevOps. Uh, I've just been putting together a whole uh, series of reports around CI/CD, and as I was putting the reports together, it occurred to me just how important it still is to just be able to build software well, repeatably, automatically, uh, and getting that what we call CI element right. And if that isn't right, then a whole bunch of things fall apart. Um, and then you get getting that right, and it, and it can be broader, but if that isn't in place, then you can't just have an end-to-end -end pipeline where it's still rubbish. Uh, so all, all of that to say, um, where do you see... Um, if, if you were to approach this situation and just distill down some of your wisdom, where, where have you been starting and what do you see as the key elements of uh, pain uh, that yes, so, your kind of organization still faces? It's a really interesting question. So um, it, it really varies on the, the software and the product, but the, pro, the approach I like to take is to, I like a holistic view. So having come from an example where I did something bottom up, I guess, in my role now, I'm a little more top down, at least to start with, uh, and uh, really putting in place that systems view. So what I love is the research that comes out of the state of DevOps report. Oh, yeah. Um, and the metrics used there, I found time and time again, allow me to have a very balanced conversation with both engineering and the business. And it puts tension in the right, uh, at the right points between throughput and stability. And so you, you could have a discussion with development and it would all be about giving me a build that runs in nanoseconds. And you could talk to a change approval uh, team that where they take, they want to have um, change approval boards and they'll make you wait a week before you push into production because it's all about stability. And so actually balancing that out with those metrics helps the business understand what it actually wants to do and helps focus on system level outcomes. If you... If you don't do that, I found you can fall into common pitfalls. You can use metrics that optimize locally at the cost of an overall outcome, and they don't end up linking back to business outcomes. So I like to start there. I've found it um, a good framework to just look at all the various software Finastra offers and put ourselves, uh, chart ourselves on that, bench benchmark ourselves on that, and then use that as the foundation for improvement. Um, and the other tool I really like to use at, at this stage of my career is, is value stream maps. Uh, ah, very <laughs> yeah. keen on that. Sorry, I've read a report on that as well. So, but we can come back. To that. Yeah. So, a value stream maps, very, you know, recently for me have just allowed um, us to take a step back, forget the technology, the process, or the people for a second, just map out what's going on and what are the set of constraints that are actually affecting us. Uh, rather than anecdotally what we feel may be the case. Uh, and then beginning to pick up where the biggest waste exists. And it's, it may not necessarily be where your uh, stakeholders ask you to focus. So just being able to do that assessment, have that framework, um, I found to be very useful. Also, you will break a siloed approach to thinking. 
because you're by necessity you're going to different stakeholders uh, across the value stream you'll get different versions of the value stream usually and you have to put it all together into a consistent view so uh, that's another tool i really like um and from there then we get into okay this is where we are what do we want to do uh, is this um long lived software where we're just looking to optimize um margins and profitability and productivity we have no goals of necessarily changing the software architecture um investment in technical debt at the stage it, it is what it is Let, let's make it um let's optimize it uh-huh. or is it a new project we've got aspirations to for growth ideation uh, which is you know a big um a big thing at the moment i want to be able to uh, have internet scale uh, i want continuous delivery and i want my system to be available at all times and you, you, uh, i i found using this those this framework allows me attack to attack both problems uh, it's interesting i mean would you say that it's as binary as that in terms of some things are kind of very efficiency oriented and some things are very scale oriented to to paraphrase you or is there or is it more of a spectrum and there's there's different kind of places on that um line you can be Yeah for sure I think it there is a spectrum um I'm giving extreme examples for sure hmm. um just to kind of tease out the differences uh but yeah I mean in the middle you've got um products that want to that have been successful in one model uh, tip in an enterprise typically an enterprise that goes through a lot of integration typically software potentially sold in a licensed fashion that services implementation uh client owns UAT in production and have has aspirations of actually moving uh, across into a market where they want to offer uh, that as a managed service uh, and that's a really interesting challenge at that stage because um it becomes uh working within devops it becomes um there's a set of constraints you have to be aware of uh, uh within um what you need to do and it's not always in your hands in terms of the uh, um outcomes the business wants uh, for example uh you can throw all the devops tooling and automation at a, a product but if it's a very lumpy uh, heavily customized product uh, there's only so far you're going to get with the, the mm-hmm. delivery performance and operational performance um if you're not looking at the cost of ownership uh um you know it may not be a profitable model and so yeah i, I think it is a much more nuanced uh conversation when you get into it with examples like that okay no that, that that's cool uh, and uh, I feel I'm throwing lots of questions at you which is quite right because it's podcast <laughs> that's the point it's an interview uh, but it, 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 I'm finding this absolutely fascinating because it's testing out a whole bunch of things that I theorize about but um as people know that listen to this podcast, I I used to do this stuff but now I'm just writing about it so I I rely on people like you to to actually tell me what what reality looks like these days and uh, so when I'm theorizing about value stream for example I did write a report about it and I'm very happy to send you a copy um it's uh very much that kind of optimizing for efficiency versus uh, optimizing for for business value if you like and and bo- both are about either removing costs or or generating generating value so so they're all linked but I like the perspective that you're bringing now which is around that uh optimizing also for scale so it it's about how to make sure that, that value continues to be delivered over time uh, as you're building it up um i would uh, so i've got a caveat on this whole thing and 
I'm not saying that you um, have been. Uh, it it sounds like the dream job for for a lot of people, and uh, uh, I, I'm I'm feeling quite jealous because it does sound like you're in a lovely place to kind of help people and get stuff sorted and so on and so forth. But the I wonder how it maps onto the conversations I've had uh, with some older financial institutions, where uh, some of the things you're saying, for example, you'll say, yeah need to speak to the stakeholders and then you talk to them and it kind of, yeah, you just kind of reach a conclusion and then off you go. It's that getting stakeholders on board at all seems to be a, a real big issue in, in, in organizations where it's like kind of, well, this is always how we've done current accounts. Why would we want to change it? Or this is, you know, this is, this is the platform. This is how we work, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, what, what would you say to, organizations that, that really, really struggle with even starting the conversations about some of the things that you're saying? Yeah. So first of all, that conversation is long lived and very difficult. And I've probably trivialized uh, how, how hard it can be. I think. Um, so you're just a really nice guy and you just kind of, <laughs> uh, uh, said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have all that pain as well. But, you know, I guess uh, I guess because I've got the luxury of working across the business, there are projects where that conversation lives and it's still a sticking point. And there's projects where they, the business has got past that point and has aspirations for change. Ultimately, mm-hmm. um, it boils down to that. And there's a lot of projects in the middle. And um, I've I found technology is not the hard part. Engineering behaviors, human behaviors are far harder uh, to navigate. And um, I think I think the the approach needs to be the same. There's, there's, there's always, uh, there has to be a level of buying. If it doesn't exist, uh, you're, uh, you're dead on arrival and, um, you're setting yourself up for failure. So these conversations have have to be had. Uh, um, and mm-hmm. I would say, I would say you have like, to, so to answer your question, executive sponsorship in a large enterprise is really important. Uh, if you, um, are trying to enact this change, um, at too low level of seniority without executive sponsorship, uh, you can't force the issue. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately I found, uh, and having worked with executives that do buy into this and executives that don't, I found that to be the one compelling factor that can really shift things from, uh, like you said, you know, things are the way they are. Why do I want to get better to, uh, let's do this. Uh, we want to work with you. Um, and then having loads of conversations about, okay, this needs to be better. That needs to be better. And then, you know, just the, the floodgates opening. Uh, I have the privilege at the moment of working with a CTO that really gets this, uh, mm-hmm. advocates it, evangelizes it. And I've worked with uh, executives in the past that didn't get it. And it was more of a, um, uh, I guess, it was fashionable, I guess, to uh, put, put it in those terms. And um, that, that's, that's where it starts, in my opinion. If mm. you don't have that, you, you're not going to be successful. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it back to the two things you were talking about, the, the, the state of DevOps um, and uh, the dynamic between uh, throughput and stability. And I'm reading off my notes here. Uh, I, I don't have a photographic memory. Um, and also the value stream mapping. And um, without putting words into your mouth, I'm thinking that that value stream mapping uh, technique could be a really powerful uh, way of uh, 
both gaining executive buy-in because you can say, look, this is what it looks like and this is what we're trying to do. And then also kind of building upon that because you can actually illustrate the power of change um, and demonstrate where you have improved business outcomes um, by making the value stream more efficient or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I would say the value stream is a great way to talk to the business. It's, a, it's just the, it takes the jargon um, out of the conversation it takes, uh, it doesn't require you to understand the technicalities and it just let, lets you have a very balanced conversation that makes, it's very easy to understand and, you, and it's very digestible. Uh, on the other hand, the Dora metrics are a great way to start talking uh, to engineering about uh, and other, other teams about a balanced approach to delivery. Ah, okay, so that's that was, yeah, that was the other part of the question. So if you've got the, the kind of business facing value stream mapping uh, techniques and I mean, it, it, it is back in the day when I was a business process analyst. Uh, it, it's a powerful a, a picture is worth a thousand words and all that. You can just say, "This is what, what the world looks like," and they go, "Ah, finally, someone gets what we're trying to do." And you can see the inefficiency really clearly, and therefore almost start to act upon it. Uh, and the 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 Dora metrics, as you say, the state of DevOps stuff is is really kind of uh, statistical. So this is a clear picture of it's almost a holding a mirror up to engineering and, and, and being able to position. And, and so the engineering teams can see not only thinking out loud, it sounds like a digression, but engineering to me are also very keen to know that there's something in it for them um, in a nice way. So, you know, not just, so a, this is going to to help in terms of making my my job better. Or B, this is going to help make me mature as a you know, kind of career points, uh, just continuous improvement, uh, and uh, just get get it being able to be a better be a better role, and uh, ultimately that helps the CV and everything. So I can see how the two the two map. I would add. I would add just that it's a great the door metrics a great acid test as well for the 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 business side of the house in terms of whether they get it or not. Um, mm -hmm. And when you present them, do those metrics uh, resonate with them or not? Is a great way to determine whether um, the business is ready to have that conversation. In addition to any value stream mapping you're doing, uh, you know. Uh, uh, we the lead times uh, to production. If it's is if you're able to measure it, you're able to cast uh, what that looks like. You know, is that good performance or bad performance? Have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Does it mean something? Uh, the feedback you get ultimately also tells you whether there's there's appetite for transformation or not. Ah, uh, yeah, very good. Liking it. I'm liking it. I'm, I'm wondering. So. Um, you talked about the shift lefty stuff, uh, i.e., you know, starting to get into as uh, deciding what to do in the first place, and then um, making sure you're yeah, making sure you're doing the right thing and doing it right, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, across development and engineering. How far do we take this into the operational side of things? Um, it does there's several schools of thought about what operations becomes um, and um, I believe some of them and I don't believe some of them, but it doesn't really matter about that. But in your experience, what, uh, what lessons can be learned? What can uh, the operational engineering gain 
particularly in this world of containerization and uh, uh, more dynamic infrastructure to to improve? That was a bit of a waffly question, wasn't it? Essentially, how far right can we go? I guess for yeah, one so, of a better term. So uh, that's a really good question and one I tackle with uh, a lot uh, at the moment. So um, the organization part of it, uh, my experience has been uh, if you don't collapse operational responsibility all the way down to the service owners, i.e. the the feature team or the developers uh, pushing that um, feature into production, and taking ownership of it in the following ways, giving them a me mechanism to push into production uh, with assurance that um, it's passed a series of controls to do so, so continuous delivery. The second element of that is then looking at the operational concerns once it lives in production. Uh, if, it's, if something um, odd occurs, uh, they have the responsibility, first of all, to be the first uh, people on call to mitigate. So being mm -hmm. on call uh, creates a behavior and responsibility that I think really embodies the, the DevOps mindset. Um, I've, I've seen that, that uh, work very well. And conversely, I've seen where those, um, the, the segregation of duties has led to, um, led to it not working very well. Uh, mm. And um, I, I, I believe a mature DevOps model is one in which we, you've been able to collapse it all the way down to service teams owning their feature from cradle to grave uh, and taking responsibility for it while it lives in production and defending its availability. That's something worth writing down. Hang on, from cradle to grave. I need to capture that. And what did you say? Taking ownership um, uh, of its availability. Yeah. Yeah. Def defending its availability. Defending um, it. That, I, I knew it. Was, I knew it was a sexy phrase. And what what I've been really fortunate to do recently is um, that the, the site reliability practices help start that conversation. And you don't. Uh, I don't have any site reliability engineers in the team yet. Although I'm looking to bring um, um, engineers on board, but just enabling the practices. So first of all, do you understand your service level objective for your service uh, on, a, on a regular basis, let's say for, on a weekly basis? Do you understand how you're adhering to that? Uh, what are the fluctuations of that? Um, are you mature enough to establish an error budget uh, for that service? And once you've got that in place, do you, um, do you govern yourself by it? Uh, do you uh, pace your feature development um, in balance with your operational performance? Uh, you know, if you start exceeding your error budgets, are you rebalancing uh, features in, in favor of stability? Uh, and once th those th your talk, those same engineers are the one that are the ones that are responding to incidents and uh, are responsible for mitigating incidents very quickly to avoid customer impact. The conversation just becomes so relevant to them. And they want to. They want to bring in engineering practices to um, uh, help make their lives easier. They want very um, good monitoring practices. They want a good incident response platform. Uh, we want blameless postmortems that allow us to learn and uh, build resilience into the system. 
I've just that those conversations are just easier to have when service service uh, teams are owning production. Uh, that's that's fine. So, so the 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 question often arises here: what what happens? Operations just gets automated away. I've heard I've heard several times, and I'm thinking, look, do you know how complex it is over there? Um, and as long as it's as long as complexity exists, we're still going to need people to sort it out. But you, you is my theory, is is hypothesis. Uh, but from your perspective, you're not saying anything goes. You're just saying that it's um, uh, it all becomes part of the same team. That those skills, those practices, that kind of uh, place in the head, that responsibility, uh, should be within the the same service team. That, that's delivering, that's managing, that's, as you say, defending availability of a certain service. Ideally, so they, they, ideally, yes, they're accountable. Now, in an enterprise, you still need to support them with, um, uh, for example, with us, a cloud operations team. The, the, but the difference is the cloud operations team aren't the first ones to take the call. The service team is. And if the right. service team needs help, they go to the cloud operations team for assistance. Uh, similarly, the way um, we want to model out site reliability engineering is they are not the first ones on call. They are there to work with you to, uh, to help you mature your practices um, and work with you in software rather than in the heat of uh, an incident. Um, uh, so uh, it's, it's more the shift in responsibility. I don't, those teams are very relevant. Uh, mm. you, need them, uh, you need their support because there's always going to be something where uh, you don't have um, the skill set, the experience, the know-how uh, within uh, a small team. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so they, 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 yeah, I, I would, I would summarise it as that. That's that's fantastic, and I think that's a really good note to uh, to, to round things off on. Um, which leaves me with my, my final question. Uh, given everything that we've talked about, everything that uh, your, your deep insights, I found this absolutely fantastic. I'll, I'll use the term again. Um, if there was one thing that from all your years of experience um, that you would, uh, if someone just said to you, look, uh, where do I start? What, what's the key? What's the key that unlocks everything um, around sponsorship, around uh, best practice, around um, uh, understanding the right metrics? Uh, what would it be or what one or two things w- would you suggest as kind of, if you want to do anything, do these things first? Um, <laughs> great question. Uh, uh, don't be sure. So make sure you're having a holistic conversation. Uh, Back to if, that word. Yep. Yeah, have the conversation uh, uh, with um, various stakeholders um, is extremely important. Uh, gauge appetite for change. Uh, be realistic. Is is that going to happen or not? And um, to, to two very simple mechanisms in my opinion uh, and you should be doing both so be top down with the approach like the framework i i explained that i like to use mm-hmm. and form communities bottom up so uh we i strongly believe in communities of practices uh guilds coalescing around topics of improvement and you know sprouting uh change uh using Uh, open source, a proof of concepts and giving people space to fail uh, uh, around those initiatives so that they they have a space where they can try to do things better. 
and um, hopefully uh, you're able to connect the two. Awesome. I'm not going to. I'm not going to add anything to that. I'm just going to express my gratitude. Thank you so much for for, for joining me on this, Harbinder, and uh, uh, let me express my gratitude on, on behalf of anyone that's listening to this because I, I think there's some fantastic nuggets and gems in there. So, thank you very much for joining, and uh, everyone else, do tune in next time. Thank you, John. Thank you for the opportunity. Great pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Voices and in Innovation from GigaOM. If you enjoyed that and you'd like to learn more, make sure you go to gigaohm.com for future forward advice on IT and the entire tech industry. For GigaOhm, I've been Johnny Baldisberger, and this is Voices in Innovation.